You're listening to Nothing Funny About Money. I'm Matt Gorin. And I'm Michael Thomas. We're in the financial planning program at the University of Georgia. And on today's episode, we're talking about money and love. <laughs> or, more specifically, managing money as a couple. Maybe a future episode will focus on money and dating. But not this one. And that'd be a much shorter episode. <laughs> Why is that? It's easy advice. It's date rich. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's find a sugar daddy, sugar mama. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you can fall in love with anyone. You all might right. as well fall in love with a rich person. All right, all right. So in today's episode, we've got a special guest with us, Megan Ford, who uh, serves as the director of the Aspire Clinic and is the president of the Financial Therapy Association. Megan, thank you for being on the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, we're excited that you're here. And uh, we're going to jump right into this. And one of the things that we've been talking about is the Aspire Clinic. So if you will, tell us a little bit more about it. Yes, absolutely. I'm the director of the UGA Aspire Clinic. It's an interdisciplinary unit in the College of Family and Consumer Sciences. Uh, we offer an array of different services. Uh, we're also a training facility for students of the University of Georgia to Love sort it. of test their in-classroom knowledge and, and put it out there in, in real-world situations with real clients. Uh, so we really have a gem here on campus. Awesome. Yes, we're very proud. You can visit it, <laughs> aspireclinic.org. Tell us a little bit more about what this is. I think the best way to describe it is, um, you know, a financial therapist is an expert who specializes in helping people navigate the complex interplay between money, emotions, mm. and relationships. They help people think, feel, and behave with money um, differently as a way to improve their overall well-being. So can, um, can you contrast for us like financial advising, maybe in the traditional or conventional sense, mm -hmm. from what a financial therapist would do? Absolutely. This is a question that I get a lot. So to draw a distinction between financial therapists and traditional financial professionals, um, our end goals of really increasing a client's happiness and wealth may be similar. Yet our strategies and approaches to helping a client arrive there is quite different. Right. So, so it's the sort of thing that we keep talking about on this show. It's, it, yeah, it's a show about money, but it's not really about the money. It's more about the quality of life. How do you, right. how do you be happy? Yeah, it's not just about the numbers. Um, money involves our beliefs, our values, which is something that's much deeper. Yep. I don't think that's tapped into um, at a financial advising level, right. at least not the, the now. Traditionally, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, so you've got all these different kinds of people coming in for counseling, including couples. And so, of course, on today's show, we're talking about uh, money and love, money and couples. Yeah. So uh, what are these couple? Who are these people coming in? Yeah, I think the, the ones that I interact with and the ones that many uh, financial therapists would say that they interact with are couples who are really struggling to understand one another's perspectives around uh, finances and money. Um, they find themselves in perpetual conflict mm -hmm. around this issue. So they're seeking out maybe an expert opinion or a third party to help them sort through you know, what this looks like for them. Um, so some proactivity, but also some really entrenched conflict around yeah. this particular issue for couples. So one of the things is this whole idea of the over-functioner, under-functioner, mm -hmm. or even categorizing people as the spender or saver or the bookkeeper or wild child mm -hmm. as it relates to personality types in a relationship. So how does that kind of play out within that dynamic as well? 
Right. I think it lends itself to some of that conflict that I mentioned. If you feel like you're on the opposite end of the spectrum from your partner, (laughs) say one's a super saver and one is a super spender, there's not going to be a huge alignment in terms of your values or the way that you utilize money. Um, So as you can imagine, it gets gets a little bit sticky for couples that are um, in in such – different points uh, in terms of their view on, on how to use money or how money should be spent. Interesting. So we've kind of talked about these uh, the idea of these different personalities. Now, we also know that, you know, even for students who are listening right now, you might fall in love with somebody, right? Mm-hmm. You're at this big old school and you, you find somebody and you come from a background where you have lesser means. Yeah. And then you have someone who that you're madly in love with who's coming from a background who has a wealthier family. Mm-hmm. So when we think about, you know, money in this context, like what type of issues come up on both ends of the spectrum? Yeah, I think maybe even suspending the, the income issue, we're all coming from different money histories. And that can involve and not involve a high or low level of income. We all experience money differently growing up in our family of origin. Um, we saw our, you know, our parent or our guardian, whomever we grew up with, we saw them interact around money in a specific way that has often informed how we view um, how it should be used, either similarly or we detract from that entirely Absolutely. and go a different direction. So I think when you find couples coming together, you have these two money stories that have been carried through from a very early age into adulthood and along with all of the other values um, and beliefs that exist and have to be negotiated, um, money is one of those things that we just don't have a really great outline for how to approach together. So do you have examples maybe of this, of Mm -hmm. people using money strategically and how that can come back to bite them because maybe they don't have it to be spending. Right. I think maybe this speaks to a larger um, a larger thing that's going on in today's um, you know, public eye with social media and mm-hmm. how we're putting ourselves out there in a different way for people to see and how that can either be um, accurate or um, in many ways inaccurate or we're putting our best foot forward um, and a lot of what's behind that may or may not be um, how things are in real life. So I think that as people are starting new relationships, that may come into play. And for those that are coming from you know, a, higher, um, a higher net worth, one of the things that we consider sometimes, even or, or no, lower kind of um, money type situation, there's, there's not a lot... Um, there's not a lot that is is necessarily put out there in, in the beginning. This is not something that couples talk about on the first date. So it, it can get tricky when right. you are coming from a, a certain situation um, on the spectrum, higher income or lower income. You, you may not feel comfortable in either aspect sharing that right. or putting that out there for people to see. So when it comes to displays of wealth, 
um, you may be protective of that because of what it means about you or how that might be perceived by um, someone who, you know, is interested in you romantically. So I think it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. (laughs) (laughs) So we did talk about, so we talked a little bit about family level, money scripts, in terms of where some of these things come from, culture as well. Uh, If you've hit on communication a few times and said how important it is in terms for managing money as a couple, at least beginning that conversation a little bit. Uh, And why are people more willing to talk about sex than money? I've always wanted to know that. I'm like, (laughs) what's going on, right? Maybe it's because sex is something everyone has, but money, uh, not that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But (laughs) so make it really. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is I mean, this is a big conversation. It's like within our culture, Mm -hmm. we are we are more willing to be revealing of ourselves in a lot of different ways, even having conversations about what we just uh, previously mentioned. But mm-hmm. money is just one of those things that we really shy away from and we're not vulnerable with having that conversation. Why is that? One of the reasons may that maybe that money is connected in a lot of ways to deep-seated vulnerability mm-hmm. um, and, and emotions. So one thing that pops up a lot around money talk is shame. Mm-hmm. So feeling shameful about Um, what we know or don't know about money, how much we have or don't have about money, it elicits an emotional response for us that often equals um, feelings of of shame or guilt. And that can exist on any end of the spectrum. Those who experience wealth guilt, um, having too much and not knowing how to compensate for that advantage, or those that that come from very little and still have very little, feeling very shameful about that in a broader culture or context that says that money is extremely important and you you know, your money is your value. Is it like boilerplate advice to people? Is it be more transparent, be more open? Or if not that, what, what do you tell people? Well, I think for couples particularly, my my mantra centers around talk early and talk often. Right. And that's counter to what I think you you find a lot in popular culture, which is no advice. You know, there's not really a lot of advice out there for couples on how, how do you handle this um, issue effectively. So I always encourage from the beginning of a more serious relationship, talk early about these issues, even in small ways. And you know you don't want to be with someone who has a very different uh, relationship with money. Mm-hmm. The earlier you talk about that, the sooner you come to the realization, we might not work as a couple. We're just too different in this way. Mm-hmm. Versus you stay with someone for maybe years, and you're not talking about this, and now these issues are happening. Right. Uh, you might be committed and now into this difficult situation. I feel like even, um, you know, prior to getting in a relationship, know thyself. What, Love it. What are your, you know, explore that for yourself. Where did your beliefs and values about money come from? Ask yourself those important questions before you talk about that in a potential relationship <laughs> conflict um, context, you know, you, you have to you have to know where you're coming from before you can really understand where another person is is coming from. So do that do that self-exploration, I think, before. We've covered 
a lot, honestly, this first half of the show. Megan, thank you for your time. We appreciate you coming on and sharing a lot of great information about couples uh, and money. And uh, Matt, if you'll send us away into the break, that'll be awesome. Right on. Stay tuned, everybody. After we get back from the break, some more practical tips for managing money as a couple. You're listening to Nothing Funny About Money on WUGA Athens. 91.7 and 94.5 FM. I'm Matt Gorin. And this is Michael Thomas. Visit us on campus at the Aspire Clinic. Or online at nothingfunnyaboutmoney.org. Are you anxious about money? Do you have trouble communicating about finances with your loved ones? Try not talking about money ever. It's your money, do what you want with it. Your family and friends don't have to know a thing. Just ensure that all of your transactions are in cash and keep your secret credit card out of plain sight. Do these things, my friend, and you will find the financial happiness you've always hoped for. No, that's all terrible advice. Don't follow any of that. (laughs) That was pretty bad. Oh, God. All right, we ended the first part of the show talking about communication. So... How do we even fall into this trap of unrealistic expectations and poor communication to begin with? That's a good question. And I know just the person to explain it. Who? Dan Ariely. Yeah. Isn't he the one that talks about how we make irrational decisions? Didn't he write the book, uh, Predict? Predictably irrational. Yeah, and he also does a lot of research on romantic relationships. Like uh, how irrational people are when it comes to love. Yep. (laughs) And here's a clip when Dan talks about dating and relationships. When you get to know somebody better, what are some of the first things you learn about them? That they disappoint you in all kinds of ways. So this this is true in visual illusion. If you take pictures of people and you blur them out and you make them fuzzy, Everybody looks more attractive. So Dan's saying early on in a relationship, we kind of look at the person through the lens of puppy dog eyes. They can do no wrong. Yeah, usually that's what people say about me. (laughs) Really? That does not surprise (laughs) me at all. Uh, Yeah, as he further explains, (laughs) this illusion of attractiveness has a tendency to wear off after a while. As you get into the little details of life, you start seeing wrinkles. Right? When you look at people in general terms, you only see the good things in them. How does this illusion of attractiveness play out in relationships? Right? So if you, if you look at somebody you don't know very well, all the little annoying habits that they have are just going to be outside of scope for you, and you will just imagine that they all work well. Only when they move in, you get to, to see those, those details. In other words, we assume that stuff is just going to work out when we are in the infatuation stage, right? Yeah, and thinking things will work out extends to conflicts about money. All right, so he's a spender, you're a saver. Yeah, and in those early dates where he splurges on you, you're thinking, he's so spontaneous and romantic. (laughs) And then, right, a year later, it's like, how do you have all this credit card debt? You're 33 years old. Speaking of which, that reminds me of that John Legend song. Which one's that? Uh, The one that goes like... We're just ordinary people. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> we don't know which way to go. That's, that's horrible. <laughs> I know, but he talks about the reality of relationships, what you really, oh, really get to know someone, right? Oh, God, right? that was horrible. Uh, but back to the point, Ariely makes a similar argument when relationships grow past the infatuation stage. And now you're in bed next to somebody 
and you wake up in the morning and you say, is this what I want for the rest of my life when I have other options here? And that waking up ultimately leads to this. So the thing that worries me is that when we're in a relationship, but continuously with, with one foot out mm -hmm. and continuously thinking about how the outside world is more tempting and more interesting and so on, it's actually not a good recipe for investing in a relationship. Agreed. And I'm pretty sure that many of our listeners can relate. Yeah, one of the biggest investments many people make is moving in together. All right, and the, the payoff of this investment, however, is dependent upon the strength of the relationship, right? Yeah, but listen to these numbers. How much money can couples save by moving in together? According to a 2013 poll by First Direct Bank, they're 10% more likely to save money every month and 51% more likely to save for retirement. But it's not just about savings. They're also 22% more likely to have money for a monthly weekend okay. trip and 60% more likely to be able to afford a new car every three years. All right, all right. So let's do an example here where this comes from. Let's say two people are dating and they spend $800 a month each on housing. They move in together and that cuts out almost $10,000 a year in expenses. Wow. I can see how this would be important in expensive housing areas. And you spent some time living in Oakland. Yeah, so five tell years. me, tell me how you navigated that process. Uh, so like out here, I, I've noticed people don't tend to move in with each other as often. But out in Oakland, it's like, uh, hey, we've had a couple dates together. I think you're a pretty cool guy. <laughs> When's your lease expire? What are you doing this weekend? Can I move in? Some of these pitfalls that we talk about with regards to uh, Dan Ariely and uh, the likelihood of having bad relationships and settling, when you move in first, the, the opportunity of, or chance of that happening is more significant, right? If oh, you move for in sure. Early? Yeah, you, you, so, shouldn't, you shouldn't do what I did. <laughs> I, to, I'm not saying not do to, what I did. I'm saying that's what I did. We have college students yeah, who are listening Don't right move in together just to save money. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, you might save some money, but again, the money is not the, the root of this. It's the quality of life. And so Dan has some research on this that people who move in together for reasons like they're just trying to save money, they're less likely to have satisfying relationships, more likely to get divorced if they do eventually marry. So there is much more to life about money. And don't get focused on these the short-term savings there. So you know what's interesting here, too, is that uh, we, you know, Megan was on the, the first part of the show, and, you know, we talk about this whole notion that people don't talk about money, uh, particularly with uh, premarital couples and things of that nature. So what are some of the types of things or decisions that people need to be mindful of even before they begin this process? Because even married people aren't having these conversations, let alone folks who are just kind of together, right? Sure. So it's, it's not just, are we going to move in? It's also, how are we going to commingle our finances? And just being in a committed relationship means you're going to do at least some commingling, whether you want to or not. Right. And some of these decisions that you got to make are who is actually managing the money. Yeah. If you're going to get married, who's uh, paying for the wedding? What's the budget for that wedding? You're moving in together. Who's buying the furniture? How much is that going to cost? Own the house. Who's on the title? Who's making the mortgage payments? <laughs> and, like on and on Prenup. and on and on. <laughs> right. Do you, do you get a prenup? There's so many decisions that have to be made when you come together like that. Wow. I had a situation not too long ago just kind of working with some folks, and they're going through this process. You know, these major life changes are happening, and, and the wife is freaking out because she doesn't feel like they have enough money to handle it all. And he just kind of pops up and says, well, you know, I have this other money sitting in this account somewhere. And she's like, oh, Really? And he's like, yeah. yeah. By the way, all that stress <laughs> that you were going under. You're, you know what I'm saying? Like, this but the gray hair does look great on you, honey. <laughs> 
I mean, this stuff happens all the time. And even beyond that, it's the idea of when we talk about co-mingling, how do you do it, right? Do you bring all the money together? Are there, is it one of those things where like, Matt, you, you and I come into this situation and it's like, you cover half, I cover half, and the rest of it is our money? Or we just don't commingle at all because these are things that people are actually having conversations about right now. Right, sure. So there's like a few different ways of actually practically doing this. And you've got uh, some people do just 100% commingling. It's my money is your money. Your money is my money. <laughs> Same bank account. We have one debit card, you know, both our names on it, that sort of thing. That can work for some people, but in my experience working with couples, not many people like that. Uh, and then the other opposite extreme of that, I've got some friends of mine who are uh, completely separate. There's no shared bank account whatsoever. Uh, they split the rent down the middle and one person pays the other. One person has this big investment account you know, worth tens of thousands of dollars. The other guy's in credit card debt. Oh, wow. And now what would make sense as a couple yep. from a strictly financial point of view is don't invest that money, pay off the credit card bill first. And, and what's the logic behind that, though? Like if you're, if you're only earning, what, maybe 6 or 7% on the investment account and you have these credit cards right, that are with 20%, 20% or whatever, right? of course, you're losing money. Now, well, why would they do that? Again, it's not just about money. In, in their experience, they can reduce the stress and conflict in the relationship if it's like, hey, if he's going to go and spend a bunch of money on stupid stuff that I would rather him not <laughs> spend the money on, but who am I to tell him? And if he wants to go out and, and live this life, he, he wants the freedom to do that. And he thinks she's kind of odd for saving all this money and not, <laughs> and not doing things she wants. So let's just manage it separately, not really get into it, and that's their way of doing it. I think most people, in what I think is kind of the healthiest way, is a little bit of both. That you're managing money together when it makes sense. Like if someone is in credit card debt, the other person can help them out. You've got a shared joint savings account. You're making shared mortgage payments if you own a house because both of your names are on the title, that sort of thing. And each person has a separate account. Uh, a firm that I uh, used to work for, Arite, we called that separate account the Purple Hat account, like from Purple Dr. Seuss. <laughs> so everybody's got their own little Dr. Seuss fund money that's every month. And, you know, hey, it's up to me. I can spend this little amount of money. But this works within a context of that this is agreed upon. Right. So right. If you have the conversation. How are we going to manage money so as a couple? So we have to be clear on the expectations right. of how we want exactly. to manage Exactly. Right. And I'll throw another practical tip out there. Something I, I learned from my parents was they had separate account to some extent. If they bought anything that was less than, um, say, $200, hmm. no questions asked. Oh, wow. But if you want to go out and buy something <laughs> more than that, you so, need to run it by me. Pick an amount of money. If it's less than that, you want to go... And, and pick up some chips from the gas station or something, that's on you. I'm not okay. going to give you uh, you know, a hard time about it. But you want to go out and buy a new Xbox or something, hey, you need to run that by me first. <laughs> Completely understand. And you know what? At this point, I think we've covered a good bit concerning commingling, uh, finances, all that good stuff. So let's dive into some of our money and happiness practical tips uh, as it relates to all of this. Just to kind of speak to what we were just talking about, I think that big piece right there, and Megan talked about this too, is the importance of communicating shared expectations. There's no necessarily right way to do it, but if we're communicating and we have a shared vision, no matter how big or small, and have realistic expectations on how we are to contribute to that vision or goal, that's that's the important piece to this process. Right. Just co-mingling your finances or having the shared vision, that itself 
you can make the relationship better. Of course, right? You'll be more open and honest about these things that might bother you. And if you even if you start off with something small, like together we're yep. going to save $20 a week. Easy. Doing that as a couple can help out the relationship. And what would that $20 a week lead to, you would say? Maybe a... Like, well, some things that I think are important to spend money on is each other. Go out and have the date nights, have the vacations together. Make that a priority in your relationship. So even if you've been together for a while, I think something that a lot of couples do, they kind of fall back onto, hey, it's easy to sit back and watch TV. Of course. It's easy to not go on dates. What we know about uh, romantic relationship (laughs) research says you have to keep making the effort. So be willing to spend the money on the date night. It's And really, when you budget this stuff out over the year, it's often not very expensive. There's a lot of really good cheap date ideas. And we're all about coupons in my household. So if we can get those two-for-one, $15 offers, comes with dessert and all that good stuff, I mean, we're doing it, right? There you uh, go. And that's what $20 can. And you save $5, and you just put that towards the next week. Exactly. But like you were saying, the small things matter, right? So... And you mentioned this the other day. Like, do you remember that time when you spent all night talking on the phone? Epic. Right. Epic. And your happiest memory we had in another episode was just walking around in the park. That's free. Yeah. Easy. And I mean, you're thinking about the kids smiling, holding hands with the missus or your partner, whoever it may be. But it really are those simple things. And we get so caught up in maybe what we see on Facebook and people taking trips and all that good stuff. Just kind of overlook the little things that we can do each and every day. Right on. And again, you can't have this, these strategies and know what you're going to be spending money on until you open up and talk about it. So we got some practical tips even for having that conversation. Of course. So one of the very simple ones is to avoid decision fatigue, we call it. <laughs> Don't have this conversation right when you get home from work oh, after a long day. Set some time off, maybe on a weekend. You're both relaxed when you're in a good state of mind. Of course. I mean, think about it. I mean, I'm going realistically from 7.45 most days to about 6 o'clock. We still have stuff that we have to do with the boys and the kids. We put them down to bed, and then it's about 8.30 or 9, and that is not the time to say, hey, can you look at this statement? Like, no, I don't want to look at this statement. No, I don't want to talk about the spending plan. I'm good, right? Right on. Uh, So that could actually lead to how people, what people expect out of the process when they're having the conversation. Right. If you go into this conversation expecting it to not go well, guess what? It's going to go badly. If you go into it thinking, we are partners, we want this to Absolutely. go well, I trust you, you trust me, we want this to be better for both of us, suddenly the conversation goes of a course. lot better. This is contributing to our happiness, right? Hence, money and happiness. Why can't it? Because it can I was going to say one of the last ones here, and I think that this is a biggie, and we're talking about the overfunctioner, underfunctioner, right? So you have these roles within a household on who does what, but what ultimately happens is that one person is completely out of the loop on how to do certain things, right? It could be something as simple as planning the grocery shopping list and going and shopping for groceries, knowing where an insurance policy is, or simply going through and working through the spending plan. Like you don't know what we're paying to childcare every month. You don't know what money is going out for this or that or the other. So it's one of those things that families or couples really need to be mindful of, right? Yeah. In the the worst case scenario with these sorts of things is that something happens to that over-functioner. Something happens to the person who manages all the money, and now suddenly the one who has no idea what's going on within the money is left to manage all of these things yep. by him or herself. It can be a huge disaster. It's very unfortunate. So at an absolute minimum, 
have transparency, have open communication. In some ways, the communication is more important than the actual involvement in the decision-making. Of course. And I would even go as far as to say, you know what, if, even if it's just a day or it's in a week, find an opportunity to swap those financial roles and duties, all right? Just find an opportunity to right. do it. So normally, you're the one who manages the grocery budget. Hand that off to the partner. Yeah. This Agreed week. upon, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Don't just Baby sw- like, throw it at them. <laughs> Guess what, Cheryl? It's on you this week. I'm going to go to the Bahamas. Right. Now, you want to talk about it ahead of time. All right. Well, you know what, Matt? This has been awesome. Is that it? Yeah, are we done? Yeah, I think we're done. So need help? Visit Aspire or go to nothingfunnyaboutmoney.org. All right, and special thanks yet again, executive producer Chris Shoup, our audio engineer Garrett Burke, our content editor Sam Stevens, and thanks again to Megan Ford for coming in to be our guest today. And uh, and one of the, the last people we want to thank are our listeners. We appreciate you for, for tuning in, and we hope that this was incredibly helpful to you. You've been listening to Nothing Funny About Money. I'm Matt Gorin. And I'm Michael Thomas. This program is made possible by the College of Family and Consumer Sciences at the University of Georgia in cooperation with WUGA. For more information about our program, visit us online at nothingfunnyaboutmoney.org. Or need help? Get it. Visit us on campus at the Aspire Clinic. Thanks for listening.